Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. The Guardian. Hello, this is Music Weekly. I'm Alexis Petridis. And I'm Kieran Yates. This week, a celebration of the time-travelling wonders of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Plus singles from Joyce Muniz, Rita Ora and SCA with Chance the Rapper. That's all here on Music Weekly from The Guardian. Ben Beaumont-Thomas joins us. Hello, Ben. Hello. How you doing? Very good. Obviously, one sort of story has dominated the news thus far this week, as a, a time recording, which is the, uh, the pretty shocking and surprising death of, uh, of Frankie Knuckles. I think one of the things that... Uh, there's a lot been sort of written about it, but um, I think one of the things I find sort of, you know, pleasing about the sort of response to, to Frankie Knuckles' death is that there's been so much of it, in that, you know, he seems... Dance music is very big at the moment, but he seems like within that world of kind of artists, you know, almost like a forgotten figure in a way, because he comes from a completely different era, he comes from a completely different time. And yet, you had people sort of like Disclosure and stuff tweeting about him yesterday, which is sort of amazing, isn't it? That's quite nice. Also, what I thought was really funny was all on the sort of the laddie banter mix mag dj mag facebook pages where these boys but their profile pictures is just them like in malia with fluorescent paint and vest tops just being like oh fucking legend mate r.i.p <laughs> <laughs> i mean he was it's interesting i was reading some sort of interviews from last year and he was very kind of equivocal about things like edm and stuff like that he wasn't you know it wasn't for him but he didn't seem terribly bothered about the fact that they weren't, you know, paying sort of homage to him and stuff like that. I mean, he, his attitude was like, you know, when house music first started, everybody thought, you know, this was like the worst thing that had ever happened and da da da, and we were ruining music and all this kind of stuff. And that seems to be the reaction the EDM's getting. Yeah, getting I, I think he seemed, to, I haven't seen him play in recent years, but uh, by all accounts, he, would, he wouldn't just do sort of bland nostalgia sets. Not and, you know, I saw um, Kevin Saunderson recently and was thinking, oh, this is going to be like, Detroit Classics 101 mm. uh, for like a new generation and he just played really upfront house music and, right. and like quite kind of not experimental stuff but but fresh mm. stuff and the, these are people who who unlike uh, the more sort of August members of the like rock community for example mm. don't Necessarily rest on their sort of laws and do some nostalgia stuff. Derek May always used to seem to. It seemed to me that whenever I saw Derek May play in the kind of late nineties, I'm pretty much playing Strings of Life. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Largely playing records that he'd made, um, you know, uh, decades before. But no, I think that's that's a sort of um, that's kind of an intriguing thing. Apparently, Richie Horton. This seems to what I didn't understand this entirely. I should have looked into it more. I suppose had organised some sort of. It's terribly, it seems terribly patronising. Some sort of a series of talks to kind of tell people who are into EDM what dance music was really about, <laughs> what techno was all about. And he'd asked Frankie Knuckles to be part of it, and Frankie Knuckles told him to sod off. Right. Which is exactly as it should be, because it's like someone at the height of punk kind of organising a bunch of talks about Chuck Berry. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just telling the Sex Pistols fans what's what. Um, what other news beyond uh, the sad demise of Frankie Knuckles? Uh, there is the news today that uh, Courtney Love has well, previously said that she wanted to kind of leave the Kurt Cobain story to rest and just <laughs> let it be. But now she's decided to stick on a gold load of sequins onto the story and sort of 
jazz it up massively by um, potentially bringing it to the Broadway stage. Uh, wow. Creating a musical, which well, apparently has the... She's doing in collaboration with Francis Bean, uh, their daughter, uh, and... and Andrew has Lloyd apparently, Webber. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tim Rice is writing the, uh, the lyric <laughs> sheet. Uh, but, yeah, apparently uh, it's it's come after a... A very positive response that she sort of tested the water on social media and there was lots of support for it. So even though it sounds like the most crass thing ever, maybe it's kind of... Is this going to be a a jukebox musical using the uh, songs of Nirvana? Is it going to have Rape Me in it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know. What you do with that, because they are not songs that lend themselves to the, you know what I mean? You know, Jersey Boys thought they had that whole corner of the market tied up, and Absolutely. now it's just been blown wide open. I know, again. I know, it's, it's, a very, it's a very strange thing. Of course it is uh, 20 years this week that Kurt Cobain, um, which is, I mean, you know, is either, depending on your age, seems like, you know, it doesn't seem that long ago, or it seems like something that happened in shortly after the Second World War. Um, but it's an interesting way of uh, celebrating his legacy. They're also going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Are they? Uh, and there's going to be a kind of the first meeting between Courtney Love and Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic in that 20 be, years. That will be worth like, seeing, yeah, I so, would have thought. Yeah, that sounds... Uh, but it'd probably be kind of a... I don't, I don't, I don't know, it's, it's all sort of depend on Courtney, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously uh, everyone knows what a lovely man Dave Grohl is. So he's not going to start anything yeah <laughs> whereas Courtney I gather can be quite unpredictable <laughs> what was what was the natural move from those sort of diehard Nirvana grunge fans did they move over to metal or what sort of yeah I think what, they probably what, did. what did they take where did they go yeah <laughs> well in America grunge just carried on didn't it it just right. carried on in ever if you look at because obviously the other 20th anniversary this month is the release of Park Life uh, by Blur and the sort of the, the right. kind of first major you know, sort of first really big album of Britpop. And I always find, if you ever talk to American journalists, however much you slag off Britpop, they're like, you have no idea how bad American kind of alternative music was in that same period. <laughs> they didn't go for that at all. And you got these sort of... I heard this band called Sublime. Oh, my oh, God. Yeah. They are spectacularly <laughs> bad. Just the worst... Cause they're I'm, still really popular. I was just you... in the States for a while, and it was like, people really loved them. Like, it's sort of... Yeah, white sort of cod reggae, cod reggae. like yeah. ripping a bong to loads of like white girls and dreadlocks. I um was in Las Vegas recently, uh, and uh, I was going out to an EDM club, and I tried to have a little disco night beforehand, and I was awoken by the people in the room of the hotel next to mine having a party, and they were playing this. Just like the shittest music. I'd it ever is heard the chill out music oh, for was, EDM fans. Yeah, was, like. And I was like, but this is sort of rubbish. This is like, sort of, you know, kind of a, a sort of cross between Jack Johnson and UB40. It's absolutely awful. <laughs> and I was Googling. I never, I didn't know what it was. And this was sublime. This was what Americans listen to yeah. um, instead of grunge. Other than that, anything else other than Courtney? Um, there's the Mad Villainy um, anniversary this year as well, isn't it? I think it's a decade. And then. 18. A decade since what? Uh, since its release, right. and then 18 years of Stone's Throw Records. Wow, um, oh, they've made a film, haven't they? They've made yeah, a documentary film about Stone's Throw Records. Our Vinyl Weighs a Ton, and it's really great. And there's Is it good? Of, have you seen it? Yeah, it's really good. Uh, there's, there's, there's a sort of amazing archive footage of Jay Diller performing in his wheelchair. Wow. Like, yeah, a few days before his death, and yeah, sort of Mad Lib is talking about, actually, he didn't really have much to do with MF Doom when they St- were Stone's, together. Stone's Throw, for the people who don't know, that is Peanut Butter Wolf's label, is it not? Yep. Excellent. He was sort of at the forefront of of that really sort of skewed um, alternative soul sampling and jazzy hip-hop at that time, using Mad Lib as their sort of central producer for the label. 
<coughs> who did stuff with uh, Common and Talib Kweli and then later May Hawthorne and Dame Funk. Aloe Black. Yeah, and Aloe Black, who declined to be interviewed for the film. Really? Yeah, because he's why. moved over to a major, I can't remember which one. Interscope, I think. Interscope. Yeah. And mm. there's no reason why he can't be interviewed. I know. Mm. Bad Aloe Black? Yes. Nasty Aloe Black? Yeah. I think he's a bad man. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well, moving on. Uh, let's open up a singles club. Ben, let's have your track first. That is uh, Rita Ora, the new single by Rita Ora, I Will Never Let You Down. Now, I confess, Ben, I am largely aware of Rita Ora as the person that the London Evening Standard <laughs> puts on the front cover. No matter what event, no matter who turns up to any event, it could be the most famous people in the entire world would turn up to some opening or whatever, and the Evening Standard would publish a photograph of Rita Ora at the same event. Um, do you, this is uh, Explain to us about this track and what you like about it, my brought it to him. I like this track because, well, it's called I Will Never Let, Let You Down. And, uh, I, you know, this is, to my ears, uh, frankly, a lie because Rita Ora <laughs> lets me down on a constant basis with her, her previous work. Right. I thought um, R.I.P. and uh, sort of her previous album, this kind of really bad example of this kind of pop that's been sort of writers camped and sort of focus grouped mm. together rather than actually kind of have this pure drive to write a song. It's sort of been glued together from lots of quite good innovative bits and there's no real tune. Whereas this absolutely does have a tune and it's got a very incredible chorus and it's um, produced, I'm not actually sure who it's written by, but produced by Calvin Harris, who is okay. uh, Rita boyfriend, so it's quite a good, is he really? really good advert for nepotism, actually, because, uh, <laughs> you know, this is a, this is the, probably the best thing she's ever done. Um, wow. And there's a real kind of, it is one of those songs that the verse <laughs> is, purely exists only to serve the chorus, yeah, 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 yeah. as it quite often is the case with Calvin Harris's oeuvre, um, that it's, it's setting it up this massive, like, uh, fall to the floor epic pop moment but but that kind of the the ridiculous disparity between the verse and chorus kind of makes it all the all the better i think i, I love it kieran oh yeah i don't love it um only because well i was i was at home this weekend for mother's day with my family and my sister's 17 and so we watched lots of music television mm-hmm. um and so we're just sort of like flicking constantly and i feel like maybe this could potentially stand on its own but when this is sandwiched between either um, you know american tracks like you know songs like from Beyonce or Katy Perry it doesn't really stand up and then when it's sandwiched between sort of UK females like KTB or Jess Glynn it doesn't really stand up either so it feels like it's it's a lot younger and a lot more fluorescent that sort of example pro green rizzle kicks maybe even Lily Allen um type mainstream pop which I just I, I could never really get to grips with and just doesn't feel like the best representation of even the pop chart at the moment um, so I didn't really like it for that, and it's and it just felt a little bit basic for me. Mm. But I did really like Hot Right Now. That was, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, that was a certified banger. But this not so much. 
Mm. Is she huge, Rita? I, don't, I really don't know that much about. She, well, she, well, as, you know, as you she, say, she, she's she's high visibility because she's yeah. But uh, so is VV Brown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, there was, right. there was a period where you yeah. know whatever happened, it's VV Brown turned up. She's one of the new M and S girls, isn't she? Yeah. Rita Ora. Yeah. Wow. Along mm. with who? Um, is uh, hang Stephen on. Lawrence's mum. Right. Mm. Um, God, I can't think now. Yeah, I can't remember. But she's one of them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She, yeah, she's she's the new Mylene class. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how bizarre. <laughs> uh, and she's also, you know, she's the face of Moschino, right, as well, at the moment, yeah. Jeremy Scott. And so she's very, you know, she knows a lot about fashion and she puts together these amazing looks. And mm. and so, yeah, she, she works, she fills, ticks so many of the boxes to be a good pop star in terms of, uh, her visual presence but yeah it's been really lacking up till now in terms of tunes but I think this kind of hits the spot Interesting. But she's very Radio 1 fodder as opposed to 1 Extra which I think is the cooler station and so she's in I don't think she's aiming at 1 Extra though yeah no but I think that she's you know it's that kind of brand the sort of Nick Grimshaw Cara Delevingne set and Rita right. Laura, and yeah. they're all you know it's it's a very sort of glossy do you find glossy... that a bit kind of chummy and irritating yeah exactly <laughs> which I think of Radio 1 as a sort of those general playlist tracks. Yeah, you can kind of see why they're, they're playlisting Lily Allen, even though the material just isn't worthy of the end. Yeah, what? Well, I'm, I'm exactly. going to start. I, I exactly. heard uh, Air Balloon in, in, a, in a hardware shop. Where are you day. going with this? I thought it was all right. Because <laughs> the first time I heard it. It's I, a great I, I, soundtrack to buying nails. I'll yeah. I, I tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> what was actually afterwards, it was a, 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 a key, so I could open the box that's got our... Um, gas meter in it but anyway um <laughs> i'd previously heard that so i just don't know whatever and then it comes like, oh of course this is all right oh, it's I proper th- fingernails at the black no, really? yeah, yeah. Oh, oh everybody's shaking their heads at me oh, oh well, okay God. fair enough yeah. um that's rita all right i will never let you down and let us move on to kieran's track weed on the vinyl Keys open doors when the keys is albino Now I knock on my door when my stars is a lino I've been fishing for a minute for a minnow Only I know that a pawn is a trade And a rookie for a castle like tuition for a final Playing hooky for a tassel Spend a minute on a minor Winds on my window Ash on my skin when the record low temps feel the wind blow Only ride rhythm to the tardiest of tempos Only ride shotgun when the car is a limo Yeah, see? I crowd surf you want to, I mean, far be it for me to uh, to proffer advice about uh, about lyrics to Chance the Rapper. You want to be careful saying weed on the vinyl. <laughs> uh, that is uh, SZA yeah. and Chance the Rapper, uh, Child's Play. Yeah, I, just, I think this is a really good example of someone using that, that sound that we've heard so much in R&B recently of being really lo-fi and really slowed down and really dreamscapey. <laughs> And putting rap on top of it that sounds like it fits and doesn't feel like they're just um, sort of bringing two of those trends together and hoping it's going to work, mm. you know. Chance the Rapper is one of um, those artists who I think has a really good ear for production and, it, you know, you can really hear that um, in that rap. And he, and I, yeah, I think that he's he's obviously taking stylistic cues from people like Schoolboy Q and Kendrick Lamar who... Um, you know, are sort of very influential in in having that alternative type production at the moment in rap. And I think that this sounds really good on it. Um, SCA is an R&B artist. She's the first non-rapper to sign to Top Dog Entertainment, which is the home of people like Scott Boy Q and Black Kippy and Kendrick and um, that whole family, which is sort of notable because she's 
Uh, well, I think that to my ear, and maybe to your ear at first, I didn't think that she was too different to people like Solange and Kalela, and um, she's been compared to the internet, um, Sid the Kids. Um, yeah, you know, I see that. thing. And yeah, and, and, I, and I thought, well, I didn't really know what she was doing with this. And then I heard this um, over this production and sort of thought that it sounded really beautiful together. I thought it was okay. I thought, no? um, yeah, I mean, okay. I... I, I um, I just it's a bit like uh, whenever Tim comes in, he brings in some sort of like indie-ish kind of R and B bit shoegazy kind. I just feel like I've heard quite a lot yeah. of stuff like this. Um, it's not that it's a bad track yeah, as yeah, such. Yeah. It just doesn't. I didn't feel I had enough. I liked uh, Chance the Rapper's uh, uh, weed on the vinyl. Non, non, whether or not he's weed on the vinyl, um, I, I thought he was good. And I thought it worked very well. That kind of mm. the, the sort of flow he's got worked really well with the track. I just feel like I've got a lot of this kind of music. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think it would take something uh, like really exceptional uh, for me to want to put a new track in that style on rather than one of the multitude of, of you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whether it's by the internet or, or you know, or um, mm-hmm. who's that fella? The the, the, the weekend, weekend or yeah. whatever. The good thing about this kind of stuff is that, you know, maybe people like Tim who might not have a really trained ear to hip hop, like because it's so slowed down. Like and me, so <laughs> Like you maybe as well. But it's so slowed down and so clear that you can hear every word. And so it gives you a, a, maybe a different <laughs> yeah, what I like appreciation. About, it's what I like Clearly about Big Sean, because like, white people like me can rap along to his stuff. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, did, did, did you like this? For that reason. Uh, <laughs> yes, I was uh, weeing all over my final in uh, excitement. But um, yeah, I, I did like it. And I think that um, you were mentioning people like Kendrick and so on. I think I, I can really hear... Um, Andre 3000 in that mm-hmm. in that sort of delivery that sort of runs and then sort of stumbles and stops and, and starts again and weaves around and uses weird meter um, mm-hmm. on slow tracks it's uh, you know and, and he's he's absolutely nailing that weird cadence which so I really enjoyed that um, I guess like you were saying it's it's I think the the thing that really shows the the hallmark of is um, Noah Shabib who mm-hmm. produces Drake stuff that that sound is is really has yeah become this completely dominant. It's very ubiquitous. This yeah. this guy um XXYYXX who produced this. There's one of his tracks is an instrumental with a kind of pitched down Beyonce sample. Incredibly simple stuff like proper bedroom producer mm. track, and it's got fourteen and a half million views on YouTube. Wow, you know, right. and like it's about you, about you, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and it, you know, it's amazing how and I think Noah Shabib has kind of created that, really. Yeah. Um, and there was something a bit, a bit reminiscent of his stuff with um, Alicia Keys to this yeah. as well, like that sort of where she's let a little bit off the leash and doesn't kind of go for the belters and just do that ruminative thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, that's SZA and Chance the Rapper Charles Play. That was Kieran's choice. And finally, my track. <laughs>
That's Joyce Muniz, uh, Back in the Days, featuring uh, Bam. I was alerted to this track uh, by Terry Farley, actually, uh, who um, stuck it up on social media going, I'm going to play that. Actually, at the gig he played with Frankie Knuckles, saying, I'm going to play this tonight. Uh, I thought, this is great. I, I'm always a bit equivocal about hip house, as it used to be known. Um, even at the time, I, I found this out the other day, um, when the first sort of hip house records came out, end of 1987 there was a general feeling that they were kind of ruining the Chicago house scene that they, they, they weren't they weren't that much caught. um but I think this works really really well uh, I'm amazed that Kraftwerk a bit have cleared a sample from uh, I think it's much more fun to compute uh, off computer yeah. world um I just think it all works really well I think it's a really uh, well put together piece of house music uh, I think it's the 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 uh, the bam Whoever he may be, his sort of rapping on it is uh, is good. Um, the Kraftwerk sample is used really well. There's something quite clever about it. someone that's you know back in the day or whatever, and they're using a sort of a really old Kraftwerk sample to make a point. Um, and I just sort of liked it. Uh, the end. Ben. Yeah, I think it it goes to sort of it's a nice reminder uh, after Frankie Knuckles has passed away of of the kind of breadth of what he created. So. It's, broadened so quickly um and and was such a hit and uh, you know his his style is obviously this very um melancholy and sort of driving um emotionally rich sound but then you very quickly had that sort of ghetto house Mm. fast quick thing this rather sort of sexy hip house you know and that's before you know the end of the 80s and if you look obviously now at the charts you can see it's a ridiculous number of forms uh that it's taken on so um but yeah i i really liked it uh like you say, the Crawford sample is still sounds incredibly fresh. Yeah, it does. Um, sound, it, it doesn't sound like uh, when a computer will come at eighty one. Yeah. So that's thirty three years old, which is yeah. a fairly amazing, you know, to me. Yeah. something that was deemed cutting edge thirty three years ago. It's interesting that, like, how you know, Crawford obviously were. I, I interviewed Wen Atkins uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you know, he was saying that his his thing was a direct ripping off uh, and, and colliding together of Kraftwerk and, and Parliament Funkadelic. Mm. Like, those are the two poles, and he smashed them together and created Cybertron. Um, and there was an interesting uh, feature in the uh, kind of comment piece in the Wire magazine this month, which sort of says everyone kind of thinks as, of and places Kraftwerk as the sort of creator of all this um, incredibly futuristic-sounding techno music. And, and obviously they did have that direct influence, but also that... You kind of forget that it goes for that, that they were directly influenced themselves by people like the Eiley brothers, and mm. uh, and so there's kind of this through line of, of sort of soul and funk into craftwork and then out again into techno. Mm. You know, it's people, some I think the argument being made was that people forget about that. Um, people present craftwork as the sort of original point of all electronic music, and mm. actually, it's sort of part of a larger lineage, but they're still so strong to, to be you know relevant and, and sounding amazing you know, in, in Ministry of Sound on Saturday night. Kieran? Yeah, I agree. I think it was really good. I think it's one of those tracks which would definitely um, appeal to those Miami Music Conference fans, sort of Paul Side of Miami and also purists, you know, and I think that's quite difficult to do those and to um, placate both of those. That's an interesting bases. idea, isn't it? Because, I mean, clearly <coughs> I was presented to me in very much a, you know, uh, with all due respect to the great Pete, uh, uh, Terry Farley, you know, that's, that's a kind of a dad house context. You know what I mean? <laughs> the, 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 yeah. That's, you know, um, 
And you think it would have kind of... Yeah, for sure. I went to cover um, Ultra Festival in Miami a couple of years ago and there was so much of this kind of stuff, you know, in the after party, yeah, after parties and like poolside stuff and, you know, there's always this that kind of excitement when a guy's trying to chat to you being like, do you know this is a craft work sample? That's brilliant. I would love... <laughs> Do you swoon at that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I would only love like there to be France. some sort of poolside party linked to kind of faith <laughs> or one of those proper dad house nights just a bunch of 40-year-old blokes with guts hanging over their swimming trunks. <laughs> Go Miami. Yeah, craft work sample. Um, amazing. Um, I'm I'm glad it's got crossover appeal. (laughs) Bill Brewster, if you're listening, friend of the pod, we can make this happen. Go on, let's have a proper faith magazine. Dad house (laughs) Southport weekend a pool party. <laughs> oh, amazing! Um, Joyce Moon is back in the days featuring Bam. A great track is out now, and that is Singles Club. Uh, Sonic Screwdrivers at the Ready, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, closed its doors in 1998 after 40 years of creating wonderful bonkers tunes of the corporation, including music for shows such as Doctor Who and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Journalist Thomas Green and Sam Willis of Technogeo Walls have uh, organised a day of events to celebrate the workshop's legacy, so we got them to tell us all about it. So we're here with uh, Thomas H. Green, who is organising a big kind of jamboree of radiophonic workshop stuff down in Chichester University soon. Unfortunately, Sam Willis from the duo Walls couldn't make it uh, along today in the end. Tom, I guess just to begin with, what is the radiophonic workshop and why is it kind of still resonating, even though it ended in the mid-90s? The Radiophonic Workshop was set up in, the, in 1958 by the BBC. Well, it was actually set up by Daphne Oram and Desmond Briscoe, who petitioned the BBC to create a, uh, a unit that could use avant-garde electronic techniques to create sounds and sound effects for mostly Radio 3, or the third programme, as it was called, and um, went on famously to provide the theme for Doctor Who and lots of the noises in Doctor Who, including the famous TARDIS... Which I've done very badly there, noise, <laughs> and the sonic screwdriver, and so forth, as well, and other programs such as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and Changes, and, and, and multiple programs until their closure uh, during changes made by John Burt in the 90s, uh, slow decline then. And they're very much a treasure of uh, English electronic music. Uh, some people have called them the, the British craft work, even, because they're, uh, they were the great innovators in electronic music, but also making very accessible music because they had to make it for television programmes and radio programmes. But, of course, before the time of craft work, even, I mean, what kind of machinery were they sort of working with to, to create all this sort of mad spectral sound? Well, there were two, two eras, really. Uh, there was the sort of 50s, late 50s and 60s, when they were using oscillators, and tape machines, cutting tape up, slowing it down, speeding it up, using reverberation and quite primitive techniques. And then 
in the 70s, there was a kind of changing of the guard where the modern synthesizer technology came in and they, they were adapting to that. And in, indeed, three of the people who are performing and will be coming down to the event on the 11th of April are from that era, Paddy Kingsland, Peter Howe and Roger Lim. And that was an, an, another era of the Radiophonic Workshop where, where they did use this synthesizer technology and uh, embraced that and pushed that forward too. I mean, was it a case of purely sound effects driven sort of composition or were they actually able to kind of go off the leash and create longer themes and an actual kind of piece of music that you would listen to outside of the context of Doctor Who or whatever it happened to be? Definitely. Albums have been made from their from their music from Doctor Who primarily, admittedly. But they did they could create whole conceptual pieces. Malcolm Clark's uh, work on the Sea Devils uh, the Doctor Who, John Pertwee versus the Sea Devils in 1972 was an extended piece of music. It was very sort of dissonant and noisy, actually, quite threatening piece of music. But there, there have been albums of music released of uh, particular composers for the Radiophonic Workshop. Paddy Kingsland had an album released, I think it was called Fourth Dimension in the early 70s. And... Yeah, there, were, there was a space for creating longer pieces to cover whole programmes, like, again, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The, the music from that was packaged and sold on as well. Do you think that they actually ended up coming out with their best work when they were sort of tightly commissioned, perhaps? I mean, there's a certain feeling, I think, with synthesising music and this sort of early, um, as you say, quite dissonant and experimental music, that it sort of can noodle around uh, a little bit. Uh, is their best work... This stuff that they've, you know, been told you need to make the sound of a time machine's doors closing, uh, perhaps. Certainly, there was a lot of fun to be had when they were they had to make music for children's television programmes. And that, by its very nature, had to be poppy and upbeat and fun. I think there's a Roger Lim piece called Swirly that's a great piece of, uh, you know, frothy, almost nonsensical piece of music. And they, they did have to adhere to the, the commissions they were given, and it did consequently create some great work. I think it's going to be interesting now that they've, I should add, they came together again in 2009 briefly to do a concert at the Roundhouse, and now they've come together again last year to perform, and uh, they'll be playing at festivals this summer, and they will be also creating a new album. And as you rightly observe, it'll be interesting to see off the leash without these commissions how they're going to respond and how what sort of pieces of music they're going to create whether it will be more indulgent or it'll stay tight and focused and tuneful They've really become quite fetishised in, in recent years, especially since the unit has been wound up. You have labels like Ghostbox, who sort of this hauntological movement that sort of seek to find sort of forgotten remnants of um, ghostly uh, imagery, perhaps within the music itself, and under the enthusiasm around library music as well. I mean, why do you think that producers and uh, curators and so on now are kind of latching onto this? stuff so much outside of contemporary electronic music? 
Well, the ghost in the machine, as you rightly sort of drawing attention to there. I mean, I think people looking, people look backwards partly for nostalgic reasons because we all we all have nostalgia. It's, it's human nature, but partly because technology has become so very miniature and so so very much on laptops and uh, is, is is rather unexciting. Consequently, and initially there was a honeymoon period with this, where people who are interested in technology and electronic music thought that was very thrilling. But we've stepped away from that now. That honeymoon is over, and people look backwards and see how exciting it is to see people with their hands on this equipment operating it using analog equipment analog equipment to create noise and create music and that is regarded as more exciting so the, the combination of those two things uh, makes the radiophonic workshop very interesting and of course a lot of people they are intimately interlinked with their childhood certainly my first experience of the workshop was probably 1974 when I was a very young child and I watched uh, John Pertwee as Doctor Who facing down some very papier-mâché-looking dinosaurs, and uh, I, I still remember the tingle of that music coming in at the end of the episode when it, when it cuts off in the cliffhanger, and I thought, I have to have more of this. And that was the first time I'd seen Doctor Who. And could be argued that uh, my li- the way my life has uh, been intimately involved with electronic music was partly kicked off by the radiophonic workshop. And do you think that's the same with uh, you know, a whole generation then of, of electronic music fans, that the, the no matter how sleek and well-tooled electronic music becomes it can never kind of recreate or sort of reanimate that that original feeling well i think yeah there's uh, certainly artists ranging from cold cut to orbital to walls modern electronic duo they they're all interested in looking back to this stuff as a sort of almost like a golden opening of, of the electronic music era i think also the doctor who theme which is what they will always be most famous for is an extraordinary piece of music and remains powerful uh, to this day, music goes in and out of fashion. There are very few pieces of music that stay consistently thrilling because people get bored of them or they, our interest in them wanes and, and rises. But the Doctor Who theme has a power that, that it retains right the way from its creation at the very beginning of the 60s. So someone who is, uh, well, one of these people that you mentioned, sort of really almost fetishising this older period of the radiophonic workshop is sam willis from the duo walls who make a kind of spacey balearic techno on compact records but who are now um just completed an album where they've plundered daphne aram's archive and she was as you mentioned earlier one of the the founders of the um workshop and had her own kind of bizarre synthesizer the way she used sort of, uh, strips of printed film as the sort of input that, that created the sounds almost painted the sound herself what's the kind of do you think the fascination for for walls with her work and and everyone else with with what she was doing yeah i think the thing with daphne oram's work is that she was uh, an innovator in terms of being a a woman in running a studio uh, probably the first woman to run a studio and there's a great deal of the feminine in her work which walls were drawn to it didn't have any harsh edge to it this is what they say and uh, they were asked by Radio 3 to become involved in a project where they looked through her archive of sonic effects and uh, music and uh, reproduced it and worked with it to create their own soundtrack, to create their own pieces, uh, some of which I think we're hearing now. And uh, they f- felt it was a, 
a way to look backwards but whilst looking forwards I think yeah and and what what did Aram kind of still have the the same level of sort of cachet as some of the other people in in the workshop because it seemed that her work was sort of discovered a bit later but actually turns out to be some of the most revolutionary I think well she left the workshop very early and she went and formed her own uh, studio an oast house in Kent and so she was a founding member and will always have that cachet of cred- credibility um, but there were other Delia Derbyshire is probably the most fetishised member of the workshop and she uh, co-created the Doctor Who theme for one thing but was also very much into the sort of uh, swinging 60s avant-gardism and was excited by the possibilities of the times. We have to remember that the workshop was partly full of artisans and creatives and and madcap uh, visionaries and partly full of scientists, men in white coats, mathematicians, people who were viewing the technology in a very technical manner uh, and a white-coated sense of uh, old-fashioned BBC uh, responsibility and respectability. I mean, was that a good crucible for creativity to have... Both those people together, was there friction? or? Yes, indeed, there was friction. I know that uh, people like the P- Pink Floyd came into the workshop in 1967 to see what was going on, and uh, they'd been using sonic techniques similar, and uh, later on, in fact, they credited some of the effects they used on Wish You Were Here and Dark Side of the Moon from ideas they pulled from the workshop. I think initially Wish You Were Here was actually going to be an album created entirely using what would be now thought of as sampling effects from around the house but they, they changed their mind about it but this was all drawn from the workshop and Dilia Derbyshire was very much into this interface whereas Dick Mills who we will have appearing at uh, our event who was there from the very beginning he very much takes the perspective that Delia had her thing and that was all very nice but no we had a job to do and that's why we got this quality of, uh, of music because we, had, we adhered to a blueprint and we, we stuck with that. And so the dynamic was of some people who had sort of free-flowing as you say rather bohemian creativity hemmed in by a, a sort of sense of bureaucratic purpose and a, a job to do. Yeah, I think very much so. I think the tra- BBC traditionalism versus free-flowing ideas. I think now, the as they've all come together again, they're very much enjoying the freedom to look forward with sonically with what they're doing, but also to touch on the material they did for the BBC, or not touch on it, really revel in it, really revel in this, in this music they created, which at the time was, was just regarded as something passing, but of course was very influential, if at a subconscious level, for a generation or two of musicians. And so at this conference and this sort of meeting of, of all these people again at Chichester Uni, what, what kinds of things are you, well, first expecting to discuss, do you think? It's best to look, look at the whole, whole event, an overview of the whole event, which is uh, the opportunity came up for myself and Dr Adam Locks uh, to put on an event that, which was involving the workshop. And we thought, why not have a day which was looking at them from a sort of semi-academic perspective, getting people like Dr Matthew Sweet involved and Dick Fiddy from BFI and Adam giving a talk as well, but also it was fun, Was had the, the fun of the, what the workshop was really about and the, all the aspects of the workshop, the colour that they bring to the event. So they're going to do a concert in the evening, but during the day 
We will have uh, various talks. We've got Walls coming down to speak about their work with the Aurum Archive. We've got James Bully from the Aurum Archive, which is at Goldsmiths, coming to talk about his work there. I run a night called Synthesize Me down in Brighton, and we're overseeing a panel where we've got people from Cabaret Voltaire, Tongue, the author Steve Mallins, uh, all talking about the about the workshop. And we have Benj, the synthesizer expert, who, who whose 20 Systems album is uh, a an an overview of synthesizer history he's coming down as well he's going to be giving a talk about the history of it all and Doctor Who lots of Doctor Who stuff we have a a surprise actually uh, involving Doctor Who which I'm I'm not allowed to say at this point but anyone who comes will see and at the end of it all when everyone's had their concert we're going to have an after party as well and a a celebration and some music from a electro pop band called the Vile Electrode so it really is a day out that's rounded and covers all bases I think and so it's kind of covered you know you mentioned people as, as varied as Cabaret Voltaire, this very rough and uh, gnarly, punkish sort of electronic music, and then Tongue, who are rather more pastoral. I mean, the workshop seems to kind of cover these spectrums and, and, and beyond. Indeed, yeah. I mean, some of the people who are involved in the workshop, they came from all sorts of backgrounds. Peter Howe was in psychedelic folk bands in the late 60s, his, his work with them bands such as Agincourt and Ithaca and now very collectible rare pieces of folk music and he went on to there but others of them came from jazz heritage some of them came from a more pop orientated heritage um, and again some of them were, were more mathematical were literally scientists mathematicians who, who approach music in that sense so yeah you have everything in the melting pot there and I think the result is very approachable but also pushing the barriers of futurism if you want if you will <laughs> That was Ben talking to uh, Thomas Green and Sam Willis. Their celebration of the Radiophonic Workshop is at Chichester University on April 11th. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Ben. Uh, Tell us your thoughts at theguardian.com forward slash musicweekly, where you can also find links to the singles club. Back next week. See you then. Bye. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today. No credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.